This episode is brought to you by Terminix. There's one thing we can all agree on. Dealing with pests is a pain. But luckily, Terminix can help. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. With over 95 years of experience, they have what it takes to take on any pest problem fast. So if your home or business has pests, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. How do we define a mystery to the good people of New Mexico and many others involved in what we have termed the ultimate cold case file? It can be defined in a single word, Roswell. Well, that's from the preface of The Roswell Incident, an eyewitness account by Thomas J. Carey and Donald R. Schmidt. The 1947 Roswell Incident is, in many ways, the first modern conspiracy theory. There's government intrigue, aliens, cover-ups, and hundreds of conflicting accounts. While this book was published in 2009, originally called Witness to Roswell, Unmasking the Government's Biggest Cover-Up, Carrie and Schmidt have been trying to expose the truth about Roswell since 1980. And they aren't alone. Most of the prominent Roswell researchers have been at it for decades. The ultimate cold case is right. Even the most benign details of the case have been worked over, revised, interpreted, and misinterpreted. And the obsession only makes the official version of the story seem even odder. In July 1947, an object crashed outside of Roswell, New Mexico. A rancher found the debris, and the military, after a bit of confusion, informed him that it was a weather balloon. So why is the incident still considered a mystery? Why can't eyewitnesses agree on even the most basic details of what happened? Why has such a simple story taken over an entire town? And why are there still people dedicating their lives to finding the truth? Conspiracy? Maybe. Coincidence? Maybe. Complicated? Absolutely. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, the ParCast Network podcast where we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. We're also not experts on aliens. So when we started reporting on Roswell, we realized we'd need some help. 
Hi, I'm Bill Thomas. And I'm Tim Johnson. Together, we host ParCast's newest podcast, Extraterrestrial. Every Tuesday, we visit the marvelous and strange stories about human encounters with beings from another world and discuss how much validity there is to these stories. Uh, Tim and Bill generously agreed to join us this week and next to help with our Roswell coverage. They'll tell the parts of this story that involve theories about extraterrestrials and provide context. Meanwhile, Carter and I will tell the parts of the story that are a little more down to earth. All four of us are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. And don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. You can listen to previous episodes of Conspiracy Theories, Extraterrestrial, and all of ParCast's other shows wherever you listen to podcasts. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you are listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to parcast.com slash merch for more information. Today we're talking about the Roswell incident. According to the official story, in July 1947, a rancher uncovered debris on his property, and the Army quickly confirmed that it was only a crashed weather balloon. But as it was later revealed, that wasn't exactly true. Next week, we'll unpack the multitudes of conspiracy theories around the crash. We'll look at a star witness whose credibility was constantly in doubt. We'll look at additional crash sites where supposedly live aliens were found, and the mysterious story of a mortician who was asked for coffins that could fit alien bodies. We'll also examine the ufologists who have dedicated their lives to answering the fundamental question of the investigation. Was it aliens? If you go to Roswell, New Mexico today, you'll find a pleasant mid-sized city with all the trappings of your usual American metropolis. McDonald's, Walmart, long strips of storefronts. You'll also find a lot of alien paraphernalia. Most fast food restaurants have drawings of little green men in their windows. There are countless signs reading, Aliens Welcome. One McDonald's is even shaped like an old school UFO. You can also check out the International UFO Museum, which is packed with statues and dioramas ready-made for an ironic Instagram post. It's probably the only place in America where you can get a picture of yourself playing foosball against an alien. In short, the town is well aware of how synonymous it is with aliens. Whether you're a skeptic or a believer, Roswell is happy to make money off of you which may be a recurring theme when we start examining why there are so many different theories about what happened there. But before we get into that, we have to understand what Roswell was like in 1947 when it was just ranchers, farmers, and a small Air Force base. If you've ever been out in the desert, you'll know that the sky is different out there. It can be clear, but the light of the moon bouncing off clouds or a pair of headlights in the distance can throw up some surreal reflections. Picture wide open plains, stars as far as the eye can see, moonlit evenings. And make sure to spend a long time picturing it, because in 1947, that's about all there was out there. There was no internet, no TV, and only a couple of radio stations. The main sources for news, along with neighbors or the newspaper. 
to give you an idea of just how much less there was going on, if you look at the Billboard Top 10 for July 6th, 1947, five of the 10 songs on the chart are covers of a song called Peg Oh My Heart. Despite all this, Roswell wasn't as sleepy as it could have been, largely due to the military base in town. It was the headquarters of, among other things, the 509th Bombardment Group, the wing of the Air Force, who just two years prior had dropped the atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. The military presence, along with the Cold War slowly coming into focus, may have made the people of Roswell a little more paranoid, a little more on edge, a little more conspiratorial. This is also the same time when the UFO wave of 1947 kicked off, beginning with the first report of a flying saucer just a couple weeks prior in Mount Rainier, Washington. The UFO wave accounts for somewhere between, per the official government estimation, 16 and 800 sightings in the same eight-week period in mid-1947. Not exactly a precise estimate, as we try to unpack the official version of the Roswell incident, keep that disparity in mind. This is a story full of wiggle room. While most people agree on a rough timeline, the details have been so disputed that it may not be possible to tell you the official order of events. The theories behind what happened during and after the incident have become so nuanced that the times and dates, sometimes down to the hour, change depending on who you ask but we'll do the best we can to keep the facts straight. What we know for sure is something crashed near the property of W.W. Brazel, generally known as Mac, around town. Mac was in his 40s, handsome, a rancher. Most of the people who described him referred to him as an old cowboy. He uncovered the debris from the crash on his ranch, which, even for this area of New Mexico, is really in the middle of nowhere. If you go out there now, it's all flat plains and the same tiny houses from when Mac lived there. Even though the story hasn't begun, we're already running into problems. We don't really have any idea when the wreckage crashed or exactly when Mac found it. We're off to a great start. The best we can figure out without delving into the various timelines put forward by pro-Roswell conspiracy researchers is to say that the crash and Mac's initial discovery occurred between June 14th and July 4th, 1947. He was wandering around his property, about eight miles from the ranch house, with either his son Vernon or a neighbor boy named D. Proctor. While there are varying descriptions of what exactly Mac found and where precisely it was, this quote from the Roswell Daily Review on July 9th, 1947, is from an interview with him, and it's the closest thing we have to an official primary source. Mac described the debris as a large area of bright wreckage made up of rubber strips, tinfoil, a rather tough paper, and sticks. In all, he estimated, the entire lot would have weighed maybe five pounds. There was no sign of any metal in the area which might have been used for an engine. There was no words to be found anywhere on the instrument, although there were letters on some of the parts. Considerable scotch tape and some tape with flowers printed upon it had been used in the construction. Now, from that, I'm thinking that if there were any aliens involved in that wreck, they were pretty small and really lo-fi. Scotch tape isn't exactly otherworldly. Sure. 
If that's truly the extent of the wreckage, then I think the impulse to rule out aliens is fair. If that's the extent of the wreckage. Officially, this is all Mac found. And this is my favorite part of the entire story. No matter what timeline you follow, there's mostly a consensus on what Mac did after he uncovered the debris. Nothing. He ignored it and went on ranching. He didn't pick up any of the wreckage or tell anyone for at least a few days. According to the Roswell Daily Review article, Mac was prompted to take another look at the wreckage when he heard the first reports of flying disks, as they were known. This would have been only a few days after the first sighting at Mount Rainier, but it's unclear what specific incident Mac would have heard about. It's difficult to get a picture of Mac's emotional state at this point, but from the newspaper article, you get the impression that he's treating the wreckage as an idle curiosity, something to disrupt the doldrums of ranch life. He picked up some of it with his family, and a few days later, he went into Roswell proper. Again, the timeline on this is a little foggy, but Mac most likely went into Roswell on July 7th, a Monday. If that sounds arbitrary, we'll have a few arguments in part two that'll tell you otherwise. From there, Mac approached the local sheriff, George Wilcox. At some point, Mac may have let the flying disc hype get to him, as he describes himself as telling Wilcox about the wreckage, kind of confidential-like. While Mac was giving his statement to Wilcox, something a little odd happened. Judd Roberts, the co-owner of a local radio station, KGFL, called Sheriff Wilcox to ask if he had anything newsworthy to report. And Roberts and Mac briefly talked about the wreckage. This seems a little inconsequential, and maybe it is. However, there's a lot of debate about what exactly Roberts and Mac discussed during that phone call and during a subsequent radio interview. Some claim that Mac told KGFL point-blank that he saw aliens. Whatever they discussed, Sheriff Wilcox, confounded by the wreckage, called the Roswell Army Airfield to pass on the information. This introduced perhaps the most important character of the entire incident, an intelligence officer named Major Jesse A. Marcel. The next day, July 8th, Major Marcel drove out to Mac's ranch with a man in plain clothes, to quote journalistic sources, to pick up the debris. The man in plain clothes was Sheridan Cavett, and he's a very odd addition to the story. He's barely ever talked about in discussions of the Roswell incident. He was interviewed years later by UFO researchers and also by the Air Force. And depending on which of them you ask, he either wasn't at Roswell at all or had no idea of the significance of the find. It's generally considered that Cavett helped Marcel and Mac gather up the wreckage, but the fact that he's such a footnote despite being a primary eyewitness of the incident is strange. Maybe the ufologists ignore him because most of what he has to say on the matter is that nothing out of the ordinary happened. Well, either way, Marcel, Mac, and Cavett gathered the wreckage, and they all sat down and tried to figure out what the heck the thing was. It was like a 3D jigsaw puzzle without a box. Unsurprisingly, they couldn't figure out how to put the pieces together. From there, Marcel and Cavett did what any good military officer would do, give up and kick it over to their superiors. They drove the wreckage back to their base in Roswell proper. From there, the order of events isn't really clear. 
The best facts we can give you are that Marcel showed the wreckage to his commanding officer, Colonel William Blanchard, and at some point, Blanchard punted the wreckage up to his superior, General Roger Ramey in Fort Worth, Texas. Ramey had the debris flown to Fort Worth, and that may have been the end of it, if it weren't for a fateful order from Blanchard. Blanchard approached Walter Hott, a public information officer on the base, and ordered him to put out a press release about the events. The release said, and I quote, The many rumors regarding the flying disc became a reality yesterday when the intelligence officer of the 508th Bomb Group was fortunate enough to gain possession of a disc. The headline that ran only half an hour later read, RAAF captures flying saucer on ranch in Roswell region. The U.S. military had confirmed publicly that they had a flying saucer. Coming up, we'll look at the fallout after the Roswell incident hit the papers. This episode is brought to you by Terminix. Terminix can't help you solve the world's biggest mysteries or take on alien life, at least not the ones you're thinking of, but they can help take care of pesky invaders in your home, like the ants in your kitchen, the roaches under your sink, and the termites in the walls. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. No matter what type of bug it is, they can Terminix it fast with personalized pest care that puts you in control. And with over 95 years of experience, it's no wonder they're trusted by homes and businesses everywhere. So if you have a pest problem, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. On July 8th, 1947, after receiving the wreckage found on Mac Brazel's ranch, the RAAF told the press that they had a flying disc. It hit headlines across Roswell, then across America. The genie's out of the bottle now. We've got the Air Force talking about aliens. Well, no. There's a lot to unpack during the few hours after the articles appeared, but first, we need to give some really important context regarding flying discs and UFOs. UFO literally means unidentified flying object. And flying disks or flying saucers are just that. So if someone in the military says they saw a UFO, that means they saw a flying object that was unidentified. It could be a flock of geese or a stealth bomber or even a weather balloon. And as far as flying disks go, the terminology comes from Kenneth Arnold's report in Mount Rainier just weeks before the Roswell incident, where he saw disks in the sky that appeared to be flying. As far as America was concerned, in July 1947, a flying disc was just a disc that flew. Any association with alien spaceships and the like came months, if not years later. Well, that's no fun. Sorry to burst your balloon, but we've got plenty of alien discussion ahead of us. 
in the meantime, a lot happened very quickly after the first reports of a flying disc hit the press. Well, the pieces of the wreckage were on their way to Fort Worth to be inspected by General Ramey. Ramey was the superior of both Major Marcel, one of the officers who picked up the wreckage, and Colonel Blanchard, who had ordered the press release. Mac Brazel was quickly becoming a local celebrity, and he had a radio interview scheduled for that very evening. Soon after the flying disc story was published, Marcel arrived at the Fort Worth base to meet with General Ramey and examine the wreckage together. This included taking photos. Well, there's a great photo of Marcel holding a piece of the wreckage that looks like a huge piece of tinfoil. There's a lot of speculation about how these conversations went and what was really in the photos taken of the wreckage, particularly in regards to a memo that General Ramey is holding in one of the photos. If we're sticking to the official version, those photos are about the only remarkable thing that happened at Fort Worth. General Ramey took one look at the debris and immediately identified it as being from a weather balloon. In fact, the flying disc portion of the weather balloon was a radar reflector, which is what Marcel is holding up in the famous photo. Just to be thorough, another officer, one Irving Newton, a weather officer at Fort Worth, was brought in to examine the material. Newton said later in an affidavit, quote, I walked into the general's office where this supposed flying saucer was lying all over the floor. As soon as I saw it, I giggled and asked if that was the flying saucer. I told them that this was a balloon, end quote. From there, Ramey doesn't waste much time getting out ahead of the flying disc story. Hot's original press release was published at 11 a.m. on July 8th, and by 4 p.m. that same day, Ramey was holding a press conference. Even though the alien connotations didn't exist yet, there was still a serious furor over these mysterious flying disks. Sheriff Wilcox received calls from London, and the AP story about it reached as far as Tehran. But the journalists at the press conference, who at this point were all pretty eager to hear more about the flying disk, got the wind taken out of them pretty swiftly. Ramey stated that the wreckage was from a standard weather balloon. The brilliant headline from the Roswell Daily Record... Ramey empties Roswell saucer. Sums up the mood nicely. Even if we're sticking to the official version, we can tell you here and now that Ramey lied. As we'll learn later, the weather balloon explanation, whether you're a skeptic or a believer, was definitely 100% a cover-up. What it was covering up is where the debate comes in. Meanwhile, Mac Brazel was discovering that celebrity didn't agree with him. While Ramey was telling the press all the fuss was over nothing, Mac told his side of the story to another journalist. An article ran the next day in the Roswell Daily Record with the headline, quote, harassed rancher who located saucer, sorry he told about it, end quote. The majority of the article is just Mac reiterating what he found. The part of the interview that sticks out and is still a major cause of debate is a line right at the end of the article. Brazel said that he had previously found two weather observation balloons on the ranch, but that what he found this time did not in any way resemble either of these. He said, quote, I am sure that what I found was not any weather observation balloon, but if I find anything else besides a bomb, they are going to have a hard time getting me to say anything about it. It's not really clear at this point why he doubt the story. 
By all official accounts, he had no reason to mistrust the military's explanation. Regardless of Brazel's take, I'm sure everyone in town had their own theories on the events. No, actually not. This was the end of anyone discussing the Roswell incident. Brazel let the matter rest, and Ramey's press conference put out the fire before it even really started going. And that's the last we heard about it for years. Over the next couple of decades, there were reams upon reams of official UFO research done by the military. Between Project Sign, Project Grudge, and Project Blue Book, the Air Force extensively cataloged UFO sightings from 1948 to 1969. There were 12,618 UFO sightings compiled in those reports. Roswell isn't one of them. After July 1947, there are zero written mentions of the Roswell incident until 1978 regarding UFOs or otherwise, until one of our nation's finest institutions came forward with the scoop to end all scoops. The National Enquirer was the first to connect UFOs with the Roswell incident. Well, that's complicated. While the Enquirer has done their fair share of Roswell stories over the years, to claim that they're the first people to report it isn't entirely true. It's a talking point used by the Air Force to discredit the pro-UFO crowd. They say that the first people to mention it were the reporters and editors of the Enquirer, and it makes it sound like garbage news. However, to say that they were the first isn't really accurate. It's more of a debate tactic. What is true is that a reporter for the Enquirer, Bob Pratt, was one of the first people to conduct interviews about the incident in the late 70s. But the real people to focus on are Stanton Friedman, William Moore, and Charles Berlitz, Carl Flock, Kevin D. Randall, and Donald Schmidt, all of whom were active around 1978 onwards interviewing people about Roswell. That seems like a really specific date. It makes you wonder why it took that long for people to start talking about the UFOs. That's a good question. And the answer, like in most good conspiracy theories, is that it was a coincidence. The first person we should pay attention to is Stanton Friedman, who to this day is one of the foremost UFO researchers in addition to being a nuclear physicist. Friedman was talking about extraterrestrial life visiting Earth back in the 60s. In 1978, someone who was aware of his background as a ufologist told Friedman he knew a guy who'd handled UFO wreckage. Re-enter Major Jesse Marcel, one of the two Air Force men to transport the wreckage from Mac Brazel's ranch. Apparently, Marcel had insisted from the jump that the wreckage was alien in origin, no matter what his superiors told him. And he'd held on to this belief for decades, telling anyone that would listen. We'll be getting into a lot more detail regarding Marcel's interviews and credibility as a witness in part two, but Friedman's exposure of Marcel's claims was what jump-started Roswell as a hotspot for ufologists and alien conspiracies. From there, interviews were conducted with as many witnesses as the ufologists could find. However, Mac Brazel died in 1963, General Ramey died in the same year, and Colonel Blanchard died in 1966. Most of the primary witnesses had passed away by the time the conspiracy theory started, and as we mentioned earlier, for whatever reason, Marcel's partner, Sheridan Cabot, wasn't a focus of the ufologists during their first frenzy of research. Marcel was their star witness, but the UFO researchers were pushing more and more conspiracy theories, linking in other witnesses of varying veracity. 
The idea of the wreckage being a mere weather balloon had begun to evaporate in the public consciousness. Jesse Marcel died in 1986, but by then his version of events had permeated every corner of ufology and his son had picked up the torch. The other major inflection point in the incident's public perception came from an episode of the show Unsolved Mysteries in 1989. In addition to some pretty cool reenactments, the episode added a few more witnesses to the mix, including Glenn Dennis, a mortician's assistant at the time who claimed he received a call from the Roswell Air Base asking what size coffins they had and if they had anything that could fit a child. Spooky. Remember what you said about aliens having to be pretty small to fit in the wreckage, maybe even child-sized? With the hubbub rising, books getting published, and the newfound UFO talk around Roswell, the government took a pretty drastic measure to curb the hysteria. In 1994, the U.S. government admitted that there was a cover-up in Roswell, and that the story that General Ramey gave about the weather balloons wasn't the whole truth. Coming up, we'll answer the question, if it wasn't a weather balloon, what was it? eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. Now, back to the story. By the 90s, various theories about the Roswell incident and its ties to possible alien activity had entered the public consciousness. The government was bombarded with constant freedom of information acts, and questions continued to be raised about what was really in the wreckage. Finally, someone who had the resources to do some digging decided to get to the bottom of what really happened at Roswell in 1947. Enter Congressman Stephen Schiff of New Mexico. Schiff was elected to the House of Representatives in 1989 and soon became a part of the House Government Operations Committee, which oversees the General Accounting Office, or GAO. The GAO is kind of like Congress's version of internal affairs. They're the branch of Congress in charge of investigating the government itself. Now, it's not clear what Schiff's interest in the Roswell case was. Being from New Mexico, he may have had a personal interest in the case and wanted to unpack it for himself. Or maybe he just wanted his constituents to stop bugging him about it. Either way, in 1993, he decided to call up the Department of Defense and ask for a briefing on whatever information about the incident they had. Their response was underwhelming. Schiff received a call back from the DOD who told him to take it up with the National Archives. While it's not clear if the DOD was just not in the mood to help or if there was something more sinister at work, Schiff's conclusion was that he was being stonewalled. He checked in with the archives and despite their extensive cataloging of UFO sightings in the aforementioned Project Blue Book, they found nothing on Roswell. From there, according to an article in the LA Times, Schiff said, quote, I was getting pretty upset at all the running around. Generally, I'm a skeptic on UFOs and alien beings, but there are indications from the runaround that I got that whatever it was, it wasn't a balloon. 
apparently it's another government cover-up. While venting about the bureaucratic quagmire he'd gotten himself in, his contacts at the GAO offered to step in and see what they could find. The GAO sent a memo to the DOD, warning them about an impending investigation into whether the proper procedures were followed in regards to the Roswell records. Fast forward a few months to July 1994, when the Air Force released a document titled Report of Air Force Research Regarding the Roswell Incident. This report was generated in the middle of Schiff's GAO investigation, which was still in progress when the document was released. It's difficult to tell whether the timeline is a coincidence or if their motives were more defensive. Here's what we have, now leave us alone. On page 16 of the report, the government lets us in on what the Roswell wreckage really was. It was a balloon, but not for any routine weather observation. Cutting through the jargon, the basics are that the government was launching balloons to monitor sound waves coming from Soviet territory in order to determine if they were conducting nuclear tests. The project was codenamed Project Mogul. According to the report, quote, Project Mogul was a then-sensitive, classified project whose purpose was to determine the state of Soviet nuclear weapons research. Because the Soviet Union's borders were closed, the U.S. government sought to develop a long-range nuclear explosion detection capability. Long-range, balloon-borne, low-frequency acoustic detection was posed as a potential solution, end quote. So there's the Air Force version of admitting a cover-up. The Roswell wreckage was a balloon from Project Mogul. Since it was a top-secret project, they couldn't go into further detail about it at the time. That's why there was confusion at the Roswell base in the first place. The project would have been above the security clearance of anyone stationed at Roswell. Remember Sheridan Cavett, the other Air Force officer with Marcel who recovered the wreckage? The Air Force tracked him down and interviewed him as the last living witness who handled the wreckage firsthand. From the report, Cabot related that he had been contacted on numerous occasions by UFO researchers. However, he felt that he had oftentimes been misrepresented or had his comments taken out of context. He thought at the time, and continues to do so today, that what he found was a weather balloon. Pretty conclusive stuff. The only living eyewitness maintained that he never thought the wreckage was a UFO. The report dealt with the rest of the theories thoroughly and sarcastically. You get the feeling that Colonel Weaver and his research team took great satisfaction in finally getting to refute the ufologists. A particularly fun passage reads, quote, Pro-UFO persons who obtain a copy of this report at this point most probably begin the cover-up is still on claims. Nevertheless, the research indicated absolutely no evidence of any kind that a spaceship crashed near Roswell or that any alien occupants were recovered therefrom in some secret military operation or otherwise. It gets even blunter. After the Roswell incident, quote, there were no indications and warnings that would be logically generated if an alien craft entered U.S. territory. To believe that such high-level security activity could be conducted without creating any records certainly stretches the imagination of those who have served in the military, who know that paperwork of some kind is necessary to accomplish even emergency, highly classified, or sensitive tasks. 
In short, the military lives and dies on paperwork, and it's pretty unlikely that nobody has found any official documents regarding an alien event. The report also implies that the military does have an idea of what a cover-up would have to entail, sort of an O.J. Simpson-style, if I did it, protest. If there was an actual alien cover-up, quote, the military would have had to order thousands of soldiers and airmen, not only at Roswell, but throughout the U.S., to act nonchalantly, pretend to conduct and report business as usual, and generate absolutely no paperwork of a suspicious nature. The records indicate that none of this happened, or if it did, it was controlled by a security system so efficient and tight that no one, U.S. or otherwise, has been able to duplicate it since. That's right. One of the military's key refutations of a cover-up is that they wouldn't be competent enough to pull it off. The report also refutes a few other theories about the Roswell crash, that the wreckage wasn't an airplane crash, a missile crash, or a nuclear accident. All that being said, this report came from the same body that lied about the wreckage being a weather balloon for nearly 50 years. Makes me wonder whether this is all part of a continued cover-up. It certainly could be. But they do draw attention to that possibility within the report. In short, it summarizes one of the theories that the Air Force imposed security oaths and death threats on anyone who came forward with knowledge about UFOs. That theory, of course, ignores that hundreds of people have come forward with those claims and none of them have ended up in shallow graves. Well, that's a fair point. It even goes back to that original interview Mac Brazel did the day after the news story ran, where he actively pushes back on the Air Force's original weather balloon claims, apparently without consequence. Never mind how Major Jesse Marcel managed to be the poster boy for an alien cover-up conspiracy for almost a decade without anyone in the government shutting him up. But the report's researchers took another step to make sure any witnesses they spoke to were honest. Quote, in order to counter possible future arguments that the persons interviewed were still covering up material because of prior security oaths, the interviewees were provided with authorization that would officially allow discussion of classified information, if applicable, or free them from any prior restriction in discussing the matter, if such existed. Sheridan Cavett, in particular, is noted as being someone who was cleared of any hypothetical security oath. There's a transcript attached to the report of his interview where he says, quote, I was not sworn into any secrecy ever about any of this stuff. I never heard anyone say, don't talk about this and it's hot stuff. I think Marcel would have told me something. Before we wrap up with the report, I want to point out one more instance of the Air Force appearing actively annoyed at the ufologists. When they go over their research methodology, they mention most of the prominent researchers that we talked about during the rise of ufology in the late 70s. From the report, quote, many of these claims appear to be hearsay, undocumented, taken out of context, self-serving, or otherwise dubious. Additionally, many of the above authors are not even in agreement over the dates of the alleged incident, the exact locations of the purported debris, and the extent of the wreckage. That may be the understatement of the century. As we'll see next week, Conspiracy theorists are all over the map when it comes to the most basic details of the Roswell incident. There's also pretty pointed criticism of the ufologist methods in the report. 
As an example, one of the books from a UFO researcher mentioned 11 military men that were stationed in Roswell and claimed that the DOD had no record of these men ever existing. The Air Force, after a cursory check, immediately found eight of the names. They had substantial documentation of their military service and they were indeed stationed in Roswell. The other three names were so common that it was impossible to tell which ones the ufologist was referring to. To add insult to injury, the report pointed out that the ufologist in question claimed to have interviewed one of these missing men in 1990, despite his record showing that he died in 1951, which is a pretty neat trick. Okay, Air Force, we get it. The other thing we want to mention about the report is that it's long. The original version released by Weaver was about 25 pages, but a supplemental report about the mechanics of Project Mogul balloons, along with attached materials, brings the report up to a staggering 1,000 pages. The combined report, entitled The Roswell Report, Fact versus Fiction in the New Mexico Desert, are available online for free if you want to check them out. Based on the tone and the sheer size of the thing, you get the impression that this was intended to be the final nail in the coffin of conspiracy theories. But although this is the end of the official version of events, if there's one thing conspiracy theorists don't like, it's being told to shut up. While we've established the official story here, there are mountains of unofficial versions and theories. There are discussions about the materials of the wreckage, multiple crash sites, and witnesses upon witnesses upon witnesses. There are even theories about alien bodies being recovered. And most shocking of all, claims about live aliens being taken into custody. Next week, we'll examine three main conspiracy theories. For conspiracy theory number one, we'll dive back into the life of Jesse Marcel, the key player in the original theories about extraterrestrials crashing in Roswell. He claims that the wreckage he found was definitely extraterrestrial in origin and that nefarious forces in the military covered up his findings from day one. For conspiracy theory number two, we'll look into the oft-rumored second crash sites where live aliens were allegedly found and taken into military custody. And conspiracy theory number three, we'll discuss the explosive claims made by Glenn Dennis, the mortician's assistant, who said he was asked for coffins to fit alien bodies, and whose main connection with the incident died in a plane crash before getting to tell her side of the story. And as a bonus, we'll look at the culture of the ufologists themselves, the infighting and refutations that have led to so much confusion over the story. While the official story has its share of twists and turns, next episode is where we're going to get into the weeds. We'll find out just exactly how far the Roswell theories have sprawled and do our best to untangle one of the tightest webs of conspiracies out there. We've got a lot of material to cover, so buckle up for next week. It's going to be wild. We'll have Bill and Tim with us again to help us navigate the many twists and turns of this unique story. Thanks for the assist this week, you guys. Always happy to help share a story about the mysteries of extraterrestrial life. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. If you want to hear more Conspiracy Theories or listen to any of ParCast's other podcasts, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, TuneIn, or your favorite podcast directory. And if you enjoy the show, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review. 
And don't forget to check out our new show, Extraterrestrial, wherever you get your podcasts. Tell us your favorite conspiracy theories on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and on Twitter at Parcast Network. Join us next week to help us untangle the vast web of Roswell theories. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories and Extraterrestrial were created by Max Cutler, are a production of Cutler Media and are part of the Parcast Network. They are produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. This episode was written by Alex Switsky and stars Molly Brandenburg, Carter Roy, Bill Thomas, and Tim Johnson. <laughs>